2: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, that smells good, Molly. What are you cooking? Well, this is a chicken stir fry, which I'm going to toss with pasta. I have the water already boiling. Seth, what are you eating? Well.
0: Uh, it's a, it's a bag of choco jalapeno cheese chips.
2: Mm, that sounds really good. Yep,
0: new flavor combination. I try to keep up. Can I help with anything?
2: Uh, I don't know. Can you recognize real food anymore? No, I'm just kidding. Um, yeah, why don't you chop those peppers there?
0: Uh, all right, all right.
2: The reason I'm cooking is because this is our second of our two-part series on what makes us human.
0: And so we should work in who we are. I'm Seth Shostak and you're Molly Bentley getting ready to toss chicken in with the onions and hey, what do you call those things?
2: Those are vegetables. So in this hour, we'll look at the adaptations that have made us human. Now, some say eating meat or using tools or what led to our bigger brains and the eventual evolution of homo sapiens sapiens. But a new theory says it's cooking.
0: That's right. Cooking is universal. Every society does it, with the exception of the food fattest who can eat their food raw.
2: Okay, can you toss in those peppers right now?
0: Yeah, okay. And biological anthropologist Richard Wrangham has something to say about why heating our food is so popular. He spent four decades observing wild chimpanzees in Africa for what they might tell us about prehistoric humans.
2: If you could just drop in this chicken. Mm. Right. And he believes that what I'm doing now, of course, in a more primitive form, is what gave rise to modern humans. Hard to believe. Cooking transformed the human race. It not only gave us bigger brains and smaller mouths and smaller guts, although maybe not for everybody, it's always relative, but it led to the division of sex roles. Can you stir this, Seth? Yeah, sure. (laughs) Now, if you hold off on those choco chips, you can can save your appetite for a real meal.
0: Uh, Believe me, I can eat a meal right after these things. Never run out of space. Oops.
2: Hey! Hey! <laughs> you dropped some chips into the pan. Can you see if you can grab them okay. before they Ow, burn? Hey!
0: Hey! Look! Funny. This is just how Richard Wrangham thinks our ancestors got hooked on cooking 1.8 million years ago. Now let's see how choco jalapeno cheese chips taste fried. <laughs>
3: mm, they're good, actually. By that time, humans had started controlling fire in some way, perhaps to protect against predators. And they would eat around the fire sometimes and food would fall in and they'd pick it out because food was precious, and they'd discover very quickly that it tasted really good.
0: So uh, this, this was an uh, early human. This was Homo erectus. This
3: was not Homo sapiens, of course.
0: Uh, what might those early foods have been? What would have fallen into the fire?
3: Oh, both meat and veg. Uh, I mean, just like um, chimpanzees eat meat and veg, although not as much meat as we do. Uh, so our early ancestors would have done the same.
0: All right, so now your theory is that this cooked food is what somehow made us human, led to the rise of modern homo sapiens. Why is that? What's the advantage
3: of cooked food, except that it takes a little longer to get it out of the kitchen? Cooked food tastes nice, and it preserves food, and it um, makes it safer. But the really big thing, the important biological aspect, is that it gives us energy. We don't know exactly how much more energy we get out of cooked food than raw food, but it might be as much as 50% of the calories. And this is huge. It's so huge that humans have adapted. They've dropped the parts of the intestine that are needed to live on raw food. And we now are totally committed to cooked food on a daily basis because it is so valuable that we want to get every possible last bit of energy out of it.
0: Well, Okay, so it's a a better energy source. It's maybe like moving from steam engines to internal combustion engines or something, but how did this make us, you know, what we think distinguishes us from our predecessors? I mean, bigger-brained, clever or whatever.
3: Yeah, I mean, it does all sorts of things. Uh, It changes our bodies, so our bodies have uh, tiny little mouths, tiny little teeth, relatively small guts compared to the great apes. We're not those sort of big-bellied things like gorillas, and that's all because we cook. But even more important from our sort of human perspective is the fact that we have big brains and those big brains require a lot of fuel. Uh, The brains are, are so expensive that they require something like a fifth of our total energy when we're asleep just to fuel our brains. And where does that come from? It turns out that it comes from sparing energy that would otherwise be given to other parts of our body, namely the gut. In primates, the species that have relatively small guts have relatively big brains. We have the smallest guts of any primate. We have the biggest brains of any primate. I, I can understand. All right, we have, better, we have
0: a better food supply. We get more nutrition, more calories, more, more energy input, if you will, because we're eating this cooked food. But I, I don't quite see why that would prompt our brains to get bigger. Maybe we would just uh, get faster or eat less or eat less often or something like that. How, how did our, you know, What was the incentive for our brains to get bigger?
3: Yeah, no, that's fair enough. In species that are able to save energy on their guts, it depends on what kind of species they are as to how they use the energy in different directions. So in birds, it might lead them to have bigger flight muscles. In um, some species, um, they might reproduce faster, like pigs. But in primates, group life is so important to them that in all species, there is a tendency for the spared energy to be directed towards using their brains more and the brains are important because in group life social competition is really key and social competition takes smarts and what was it about cooked food that appealed to them I, I'm sure they weren't thinking in terms of
0: metabolism was it just the taste did the taste somehow guide them in in choosing uh, cooked
3: food or just the fact that it was easier to eat you know cooked food is softer and all animals prefer their food softer if they have the option Uh, We also know that all animals uh, that we've tested so far prefer their food cooked to raw, and probably this is because we have neurons in our tongues that are specially tuned to the physical characteristics of food. There are neurons for detecting viscosity. There are neurons for detecting grittiness. The overall effect is you can tell from your tongue whether or not a food is soft, and it's integrated in the brain with neurons coming from uh, taste buds uh, for Sweet, sour, salt, bitter, and so on. And uh, the overall effect is that it is possible to see what food is going to be good for you. Now, the reason that soft food is good for you in terms of energy is that soft food is easier to digest. And your body has to work less hard, and therefore you get relatively more energy out of the food. From a chemical point of view, what does it do? Well, cooking does two great things. One is it makes it uh, softer and easier to digest, and the other thing is that it increases the proportion of the nutrients that actually are digestible at all. So with starch, for instance, if you eat raw starch, then a high proportion of the starch granules go through your body without being digested. If you eat protein then much of the protein that is eaten raw will go through your body undigested because what heat does is to denature protein, meaning it opens up the protein and exposes the strands of protein to action by the digestive enzymes. But if you eat it raw, then it's uh, kind of wrapped up tightly and less exposed and much more likely to go through your body without being digested at all. I'm kind of curious, Richard, what our predecessors would have been eating before they learned to uh, take it to the
0: kitchen first. I mean, you've studied what chimps eat in the wild uh, in all your work in Africa. I was wondering if I were following a chimp diet, if I somehow restricted to the, the chimp diet, sounds like a good title for a book. What might I have had for breakfast this morning?
3: Yeah, you know, there are people who follow chimpanzee diets. And so what they do is they follow what uh, people like me record as chimpanzees eating. And that is something like... Uh, Two thirds of their diet is fruit, Uh, about uh, a quarter of it is leaf, and then the rest of it is made up with uh, seeds and flowers and occasional pieces of meat. But the great majority is fruit, but of course the fruit is not like apples, bananas and oranges. It's really tough, fibrous, often very sharp-tasting, bitter-tasting, astringent-tasting fruit. It's not nice stuff. I'm speaking with Richard Wrangham, a
0: biological anthropologist at Harvard. Richard, there's a social component to this switch to cooked food, a tendency for the males to go get the food and the females to cook it. This this seems to have had long-term consequences.
3: Yeah, we don't know when the gendered aspect of uh, living with cooking began, but we do know now that in every society on earth, women tend to cook for their husbands. And in fact, in modern urban industrial society, it's really the only one in which you ever get any exceptions to that rule. So why is it that women so predictably cook for men? Remarkably, this does not depend on the proportion of food that is brought into the household by men as opposed to women. I mean, there are places where women produce almost all the food, like northern Australia. There are places where men produce all the food, like uh, the Arctic, the Inuit. But still the women always do the cooking. I think that you know, one can make a very strong argument that this is a consequence of the fact that there have to be social rules applied to the protection of the cooked food uh, in the camp where uh, everybody is doing the eating. And you need these social rules because cooking imposes the fact that the food has to lie around before it is eaten, meaning that it can therefore be stolen. And the two great rules are women cook for their husbands and they do not cook for anybody else. It's kind of a primitive protection racket in which women get protected by having a husband, and husbands get a wonderful deal out of it because they get fed every evening by their wives. Do you find that uh, women object to this theory?
0: Because it seems to, to suggest that uh, having women in the kitchen is kind of hardwired into our genes by now.
3: I'm not sure it's hardwired into the genes, but uh, I actually find that women uh, so far have not objected. I think they've been a little bit realistic about it and said, uh, yeah, you know, uh, men do exploit women. And we often tend to think that marriage is really more about sexual competition. But I think many women are sensitive to the fact that it is about economics in many ways. And if we understand the economics, then maybe we'll have a deeper understanding of, of marital dynamics. Richard, your work has implications for how and what we eat
0: today. Today, a lot more processed food. There's a lot more food, period, for that matter. Obesity is on the rise. Everybody knows that. Is this connected with our love of cooked food somehow? I mean,
3: has this turned around to, as it were, bite us while we're biting into the cooked food? Well, cooked food is the thing that made us human and gave us the energy to, uh, to do a lot of human activities. We like it so much because it gives us energy, and nowadays we have more energy than we need, or at least many of us. What has happened in the last 100 years is that the degree of processing that has emerged as a result of advances in the food industry means that we are now increasingly eating food that is tiny particle size and very well processed. And that means that it is the... Culmination of an evolutionary process, which sees us eating foods that give us more and more calories. Finally, Richard, uh, since this development—that is,
0: cooking food—which permitted the the evolution of of high intelligence, if you will, the sentient beings, Homo sapiens, and all—it it strikes me as the kind of thing that might happen anywhere, and suggests to me that if we find ET
3: eventually, then um, it's it's likely that ET will be eating cooked food. Well, it doesn't seem any surprise that uh, the one species on Earth that has developed a way to pre-digest its food using external energy is the dominant species. It's all the same principle, capturing energy from outside ourselves and using it to benefit ourselves. And I agree with you. It's very likely that when we finally do encounter intelligent species from other universes from from other solar systems, yep, I bet they'll be finding some way to use the spare energy in their environments as well. Richard Wrangham, thanks so much for being with us today. Great to chat to you. Thanks a lot.
2: Richard Wrangham is a biological anthropologist at Harvard University and the author of Catching Fire, How Cooking Made Us Human. Okay, Seth, food's done. Here's my homo sapiens sapiens special. A Little bit of chicken stir fry there, pasta.
0: I think I'll go for the stir fry a little later. I'm a little full from eating that bag of fried choco jalapeno cheese chips.
3: And now we return to the Pleistocene cooking show on this, the Australopithecus Network. And now that the fire is good and hot, spear the raw flank of mammoth with your sharpened stick. I like to keep the fur on, but that's a regional preference. Okay, drop it in the flame. Careful to control that fire. I realize that's still a new skill for our audience and takes some getting used to. Now, take the marrow that you scraped out of the thigh bone earlier and mix it with the tubers that have been cooking here on the wood. Ouch. You just have to grab them. Ow! Oh, when will someone invent tongs? Ow! Just grab them and... Oh, that's hot.
2: Coming up, the handful of genes that separate us from the chimps and more adaptive and maladaptive behaviors that make us human. It's Are We Alone?, Welcome back to
0: What Makes Us Human on Are We Alone? When Catherine Pollard joined the international team that was studying the genome of the chimpanzee, she was able to compare it with the human genome,
2: and she was stunned by the result. The genomes were 99% identical. Now a biostatistician at the Gladstone Institute at the University of California in San Francisco, Katherine Pollard, her colleagues, and other researchers got to work on identifying just which of those genes set humans apart from chimps and chickens, as you'll hear.
0: But chimps are what we're primarily and primately interested in, specifically those genes that have evolved the most since humans and chimps split. What the genes that make us human code for are not the exceptional behaviors you might imagine, like the ability to eat a burrito, change radio stations, and text message, all while driving down the highway, skills that elude most chimpanzees and make them safer for it.
2: No, it's been the small changes, a small tweak that allows us to digest starch, for example, an ability that helped us when we cooked our food, as we heard from Richard Wrangham earlier.
0: But altogether, the small genetic changes that have occurred since we diverged from the chimps have had a cumulative and big effect in setting us apart from other primates, as any viewer of American Idol can attest.
2: Well, Katie, 3 billion letters make up the human genome. That's my understanding, more or less. And only 1% of those have changed in the 6 million years since the human and the chimp lineages diverged. And so are we saying that in that 1% those are the genes that make us human?
4: Exactly. So our genome's about 3 billion letters long. And if you compare the human DNA to the chimp DNA and you line it up, about one out of every hundred bases is different between the two genomes. And in fact, half of those are different in chimp, meaning the change happened to chimp. So actually more like a half a percent or about 15 million bases have changed in the human genome in the last six million years. And sitting in there is gonna be the genetic basis for what makes us human.
2: It's such a small amount. You uh, you imagine that it'll be a much greater amount somehow, but maybe that just reflects what humans tend to think about themselves.
4: Exactly, yes. Uh, I think we expected maybe to see a larger divergence, we think of ourselves as being very special. But in fact, a nice example, a way to put that difference in perspective, is if you think about a mouse and a rat, which we might look at and think, well, they must be more similar to each other than we are to a chimpanzee. They differ at far many more bases than we do from a chimp. So we're more closely related to a chimp than a mouse is to a rat.
2: And the way that we should think about those genes, um, that that tiny difference. So you say it's it's yeah. half of a percent, maybe those are genes that mutated or that changed at some point and took us on our way towards becoming human. Is that how we think of it, they've mutated?
4: Yes, they are DNA letters, parts of our genetic code, the blueprint for making a human that sits in every cell in your body and they have changed. So the letters are are actual chemical units and we represent them by letters, actual letters, A, C, T, or G. So they're places where we have a G, for example, and Chimp has an A. And sometimes those changes don't make any difference at all, but some of them have made a difference
2: and that brings us to your work because you you've been working on isolating those changes that have made a big difference.
4: That's right. 1% or a half a percent doesn't sound like a, a lot of difference, but it's still a pretty vast territory to search and no individual person is going to look at these 15 million letters and try to figure out which ones were important and which ones weren't. So we've had to design computer algorithms to look through those bases and try to pinpoint the ones that are most likely to have had a functional difference.
2: How do you do that?
4: What we do is we let evolution help us, actually. So we look not just at chimpanzee, but the sequences of many other vertebrates that have been sequenced. And we consider a human change to be more interesting if it's a position that's been frozen through evolution up till the chimp-human ancestor. So in other words, if chimp and mouse and rat and chicken and a number of other species all have the same letter and human has a different one, that's more interesting than a position where human and chimp are different, but everybody's different from each other.
2: So, we share a lot in common with chickens, too? That's right, yeah.
4: In the functional parts of our genome, you can actually find them in chicken, and many of the bases are the same. The pieces that are less functional or less important, which is actually the vast majority of our genome, uh, don't line up as well.
2: Now, is it true that you found a number of genes that seem to be pretty significant
4: in, in terms of how fast they've changed? Uh, My work and the work of other people in this field has pinpointed a number of genes involved in the brain, in digestion, in basic morphology that underlie traits that we consider to be human-specific. We've also, in my lab, focused a great deal on changes that aren't in genes but are in sequences that turn nearby genes on and off. Are these the regulator genes? They're regulatory sequences, that's right. So these are the gene sequences that precede another sequence and that decide whether or not that that gene is going to be turned on and off. The definition of a gene is a piece of DNA that makes a functional molecule that's not DNA, that it's something else, protein or RNA, that then serves a function in the body. Uh, About 2% of our genome is genes. So the other 98% is something else. And one of the main things that that other 98% does is contain these regulatory sequences that turn the genes on and off.
2: So is it possible that a chimp could have some of the genes that we have, but they just don't have the sequence to turn that gene on and off, whatever it might be?
4: Precisely. That's uh, one of the main hypotheses that we're pursuing, which is that humans and chimps have basically the same genes, basically the same building blocks, but that we're putting them together in different ways. So we have a different wiring diagram, if you will, or a different uh, blueprint for building a building, but we're still using the same mortar and bricks.
2: One of the interesting genes that has been isolated is the FOXP2 sequence, which is associated with language in an indirect
4: way. Can you tell me more about that? Uh, We came to focus on FOXP2 because of some humans living today that have mutations in that part of the genome. And the family that carries these mutations has an interesting disease in which they have normal cognitive ability, they have the mental capacity for speech, but cannot physically articulate speech. And in focusing in on their disease and their inability to speak, this FOXP2 region of the genome was identified as underlying this physical ability to speak, and it's not understood exactly what changes happened in FOXP2 that caused the disease, but it's clear that this gene is essential for normal speech.
2: But it sounds like it's essential for anatomical reasons.
4: That's right, one hypothesis is that FOXP2 actually controls our ability to make fine muscle movements in the face and that it's an actual physical characteristic that allows us to speak.
2: Well, one of the other interesting distinctions is something, now this is a sequence, the Amy or A-M-Y-1 sequence, Mm -hmm. which allows us to digest starch. Humans can digest starch, that has something to do with who we are?
4: I think so. We like to focus on our brains, and and certainly the human brain played an important role during our evolution, but there are other things that had to happen for humans to uh, evolve into the modern species that we are and to colonize the globe. One of the things that enabled us to do that was to be able to take advantage of food sources that non-human primates cannot use. And in particular, there is a hypothesis that we came out of the jungles in Africa, started living on the savanna, and were able to survive in that environment by eating tubers, which are a source of a lot of calories, but require two things. One is the ability to digest starch, and another is they're quite hard to chew and physically digest. And so cooking helped us to evolve, to be able to use those and other high-calorie food sources outside the jungle.
2: You know, these distinctions so far, they feel so nuanced. I mean, we're able to move our jaw in a way that chimpanzees can't move their jaw, and we can digest tubers and other sources of starch. And and these traits come together to form what is a, a human. And I think we're expecting something bigger than that, or something more dramatic, and yet it's feeling very nuanced.
4: Yeah, I think I think you're picking up on something and that is that there isn't just a sudden single change that happened and bang you got a human and maybe that makes sense if you think about it. A lot of the things we do aren't really that different than other animals. Chimps can make tools. Chimps do communicate vocally. We just do it in a different way or to a different degree. And so there is some nuance in all of this. We aren't a completely different creature from chimps or from other animals, but we've changed in certain directions and in certain combinations that have enabled us to certainly play a unique role in the world
2: as we compile all these changes, these things that make us human, one of them is we can digest starch. And I I believe another one was uh, our ability to move our wrists. And we talk about our brain size. Was there a tipping point where then humans emerged? At what point do you collect enough of these changes where then you have a human?
4: It's a very hot question in the field of evolution, whether there was a tipping point, whether there was a point where within a relatively short period of time, we went from being fairly ape-like to being fairly modern human-like. As we've been discussing, this evolution of humanness and really evolution of any creature is this nuanced process where lots of pieces have to come into play. So I certainly wouldn't argue that there was one change or even a collection of changes that happened at a very specific time that flipped a switch. Interestingly though, if we do look at the fossil record, It seems like around 50,000 years ago, we went from a record for millions of years of very simple stone tools, very simple sort of camps around fires, and within a... Fairly short period of time developed things that we would consider uh, much more complex tools that you couldn't do without speech, that would be unlikely to evolve without complex social interactions, things like cave art, complex burial rituals. It looks as though our society or our culture did make a very rapid change about 50,000 years ago. And so there's a great deal of interest in whether there are specific genetic changes that underlie this, and this is an open question. All right, well,
2: Katie Pollard, thank you very much for talking to us. It was fun. Thanks a lot.
0: Katherine Pollard is a biostatistician at the Gladstone Institutes at the University of California, San Francisco. Well, we've heard from her about the adaptive evolutionary changes that have helped make us human and separate us from our hirsute cousins, but the transfer from savannah life to subway life hasn't been entirely smooth.
5: Yes, sir. Hi. I'd like some breakfast.
0: We stopped serving breakfast. You have to order something from the lunch menu.
1: I don't want lunch. I want breakfast. Yeah, well, hey, I'm really sorry. Yeah, well, hey, I'm really sorry, too.
0: Yes, big city stress. It got to Michael Douglas as an out-of-work guy living in L.A. in the film Falling Down. Traffic, taxes, arbitrary rules, and fast food joints, it's enough to have us reaching for the antacid. But we humans have brought this stress upon ourselves. I mean, our ancestors were under pressure, but not the blood pressure raising annoyance of tax audits, traffic jams, email spam, and...
2: Phone mail hell.
5: This is the answering service's answering service. The answering service that normally supplies answering services to the system is supplying services to a sister system through a separate circuit.
2: Why Zebras, zebras Don't Get, get Ulcers is the title of neuroscientist it. Robert Sapolsky's popular book on the stresses and diseases unique to humans. We are well adapted in many ways, but not to our own quickly changing technology and civilization. And it takes its toll on us, although his work with baboons shows that other primates are stressed out too.
0: Now, not long ago, Robert Sapolsky appeared in a National Geographic special called Stress, Portrait of a Killer, which may tell us all we need to know about the role of stress in our lives. But now his recent research has shown in just what ways stress affects our brain. What you found out is good news, right, Robert?
1: Well, for the most part, the news about stress in the brain is bad news and somewhat alarming and depressing short term stress and stress hormones do great things for your brain short term like maybe a couple of hours makes you think more clearly it makes your senses become sharper you're just more alert flashbulb memory phenomenon but once you're dealing with chronic stress like Anywhere from 8 or 10 hours or so up to your entire lifetime, it's doing just the opposite. Stress can decrease the amount of oxygen getting to the brain. It messes up certain types of memories. It makes anxiety worse. It causes structural damage in some of those parts of the brain. You no, know, basically all of it bad news.
2: Now you say that not all stress is bad because stress does have a survival function. To some degree we need to stress out so we can respond to situations and at one time perhaps save our lives.
1: Absolutely. And it all makes wonderful sense when thinking about stress like most beasts out there experience stress, which is your sprinting for your life and after a couple of minutes it's either over with you're over with and where we get into trouble is we are smart enough and neurotic enough that we can generate the exact same stress response for purely psychological reasons for you know endless lengths of time and that's not what evolved for short term what stress does to the brain really is great It tends to deliver oxygen and glucose to exactly the parts of the brain where it should. And again, memory getting better at that point. What did I do last time to get out of this mess? If I get out of this mess, I'm going to remember exactly what not to do next time or what got me into trouble here in the first place. I'm hearing more acutely all of that. That's great. That's not what your brain needs to do to deal with sort of the anxieties of a 30-year mortgage, though.
2: And so what is it that actually can corrode or destroy a brain cell? What is it that actually does it in?
1: Well, in terms of stress, what seems to be the main culprit is like the universe's second most famous stress hormone after adrenaline, epinephrine, far less famous, a class of hormones called glucocorticoids that come out of the adrenal gland during stress. A human version, hydrocortisone, not trivial in its implications. All sorts of synthetic versions of glucocorticoids that are used like prednisone. And this appears to be the culprit. Epinephrine, adrenaline is coming out within a couple of seconds. Um, That's the first wave of the stress response. Glucocorticoids is the much slower workhorse. And it's the chronic exposure to glucocorticoids that has this potential to damage the nervous system.
2: Now, you're using the example of the 30-year mortgage, and it occurs to me that that's quite a change from our ancestors on the savannah. They didn't have 30-year mortgages, and that humans have introduced all these new stresses, these delightful stresses, so that our stress exposure is prolonged in a way that it didn't used to be. It's a unique stress that we put on ourselves. I
1: mean, just extraordinarily. I mean, it's not until you look at sort of cognitively sophisticated primates that you get animals that could spend their time making each other miserable for psychological reasons rather than (laughs) running away from predators or running after a meal. So we share a lot in common with social baboons, for example, who I study, where their stress is overwhelmingly baboon invented and psychological. So we're similar in that way, but when it gets to us, we are just unprecedented. We can be stressed thinking about something that happened in kindergarten or our inevitable death or something happening in Darfur or something that's happening to a character in a novel you're reading that you're identifying with and the capacity to be like that displaced over space and time. Nobody's within the ballpark of us there in terms of just the sheer range of ways we can turn on the stress response when we have no business doing it evolutionarily.
2: Now, but stress does kill, it can damage you. Let's say that it can damage you. But it can also damage baboons. They're not exempt from it, even though we have a particular kind of human stress. Yep. And what you studied is the role that social hierarchies and your ranking can play in stress or one's ranking as a baboon can play in a baboon's life. And and what is the function of social hierarchies and your rank?
1: Well what you wind up seeing and these are wild baboons, I've been studying on and off for about thirty years now, what you see is your social rank has everything to do with your quality of life. And your social rank also has a lot to do with how your body responds to stress. And overwhelmingly, if you have a choice in the matter, you do not want to be a low-ranking baboon because you're going to have elevated levels of those glucocorticoids, elevated blood pressure, your cholesterol profile is going to be lousy, your immune system doesn't work great. So out of those guys, we get a fairly clear message that... Primates are very good at inflicting subordination on each other, and your health pays a price for it.
2: Can you say more about that? What is the um, the hierarchy and the baboon social structure, which I understand is quite complicated?
1: Well, in the simplest, most obvious level is like some mm-hmm brawling fight with canines all over the place and slashing and something unsubtle like that. But it's far more subtle stuff most of the time. You've got some low-ranking guy who sits and he spends a couple of minutes digging some tuber thing out of the ground to eat, and somebody higher-ranking comes and rips him off. Or somebody spends half the morning, thank God, getting somebody to finally groom him, and some higher-ranking guy just disrupts it. Or you have a high-ranking female who Who sees a low-ranking one sitting there and eating grass and walks over and makes her get up and walk away and sits down there and then that low-ranking female walks 10 paces and sits down and the high ranking one comes over and boots her out from there and does it over and over and over just to hassle her because they're sitting in a field with 400 gazillion blades of grass but it's wherever (laughs) that one's sitting that's the one I want and you just got to get up it's yes bloody tooth and claw life-threatening fights but overwhelmingly what the dominant system is about is just psychologically hassling each other and that's real familiar to our social stressors
2: now you mentioned blood in the the bloody world and blood is actually how you determine what's happening to these animals you i believe you shoot a blow dart at them and and you take which puts them to sleep for a while so that you can extract some blood.
1: Yep, exactly that or in some cases tissue samples or last year I was doing EKGs, electrocardiograms on these guys. So they have bodies that are awfully similar to ours and a lot of the same health profiles. So it's, you know, one big advantage of studying them is you look at some stress disease relationships in humans, and maybe it's got something to do with stress does to your biology, but maybe it also has something to do with the fact that stressed humans eat more and drink more and all these lifestyle risk things. Baboons don't drink alcohol they all get the same you know exercise they don't lie on questionnaires so they have very good ways of ruling out a lot of those confounding lifestyle risk factor, things that are not humans.
2: Well, when you actually look at their blood and you find out what's happening to them or you study them for particular diseases, are the subordinates susceptible to certain diseases? I mean, heart disease or high blood pressure, some of the things that humans Um, are under stress?
1: Yep, absolutely. They're more prone towards ulcers. Their wounds take longer to heal their reproductive systems are more disrupted by stress all the stuff you wouldn't want to have now
2: back to the blow dart just for a minute I understand that you're very good with a blow dart
1: um well I would what do you do well i I believe I'm very good at it, but embarrassingly, like anybody who puts in about 15 minutes of practice will be very good at it. It's very disappointingly easy to use a blowgun system. Like um,
2: spitballs in class?
1: Yeah, essentially. And you would assume that, oh my God, you're like traveling down to the Amazon to get your blowgun. There's like some company in Pennsylvania that sells these things. I mean, you can get like a Christmas basket package of blowguns for your family members. So it's all very like on... Exotic, and you just kind of practice. You lock yourself up in your room and you dart the (laughs) pillows for a couple of hours, and it's surprisingly easy to then go do this to some baboon's rear end instead.
2: From the pillows to the rear end, wow. Can we, in the way that we extrapolate to humans, in the human world, people who have higher ranking jobs also have a lot of stress. On one hand, they're offset by the fact that, okay, they're the head, the big cheese. On the other hand, they have a lot of pressures on them. So how does that work in the human world?
1: Well, actually, that's, you're tapping into one of the great urban myths that I'm sure every CEO has secretly tried to foster since 1950s, the notion of the executive stress syndrome. But when you look at the epidemiology of stress-related diseases in big corporations, it's not upper level who get the disease, it's middle management. Why middle management? Because they have the killer combination of psychological stress, which is they have responsibility, but not autonomy you know it trickles down the buck stops on them and that's the domain that's where you see the stress-related disease middle management
2: and finally now what i've read about you is that you are a self-professed type a personality and that you can't seem to lower the stress in your own life yet now you look puzzled at that and you are very calm talking to you, you seem very relaxed i know you have a busy day is that true you're type um, a
1: uh, frantically so i am am a i'm a native New Yorkers. There's essentially no way not to be. I I just devote about 90% of my energy towards not like screaming and running around like a headless chicken. So if I'm calm, it's a measure of that's worked. But no, I'm not calm at all. Are
2: you suppressing it right now? Enormously. Okay, then we'll end. Thank you very much. (laughs) thanks. Dr. Sapolsky, it's really a pleasure.
0: (laughs) Robert Sapolsky is a biologist and neuroscientist at Stanford University. He's the author of Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers: Stress, Disease, and Coping, a primates' memoir about his work with baboons, and a collection of essays called Monkey Love.
2: Up next, why the pace of human evolution is speeding up. It's what makes us human. On Are We Alone? Science Radio for thinking and evolving species on any world. I'm Jane Perez
0: We've been listening to those things that make us human in the second of our two-part series on what makes us human as we look at adaptability. But evolution doesn't stop here with us.
2: Humans continue to evolve, and very quickly, according to biologist Gregory Cochran. His position is one that's controversial among many evolutionary biologists who say that humans have reached an evolutionary plateau.
0: In other words, they're saying that if you took a Roman baby from the empire 2,000 years ago or an Egyptian infant from the side of the pyramids 5,000 years ago, He or she would not be any different physiologically from modern humans. Our ancient Roman or Egyptian, given a modern upbringing, would fit right into today's society.
2: But drawing on genetic data from Homo sapiens, including the Human Genome Project, Gregory Cochran and his colleagues disagree. They say human evolution has continued, fueled by the development of civilization, in particular the birth of agriculture. But there's more. Genetic evidence suggests it's not only continued, favoring particular traits within selected populations, but as he outlines in the book, the 10,000-year explosion, the pace of human evolution, is accelerating.
5: For example, today in Northern Europe, the vast majority of people have this variant that lets you digest milk as an adult, but when they looked at skeletons about seven to 8,000 years ago from the same area, none of them did. So there's ways to tell that things have changed, and those ways are going to get better. You know, everything we're saying now is, Somewhat preliminary, this is going to firm up a lot over the next few years.
0: Okay, now that uh, the adaptation to be able to metabolize lactose or whatever, so that we could drink milk as as adults, you know that that could be seen as well. That's just some sort of random genetic mutation. Of course, we're going to get mutations here and there. But you're saying more. You're saying that that was an adaptation that had survival value, and that's why that particular mutation is spread throughout so much of the population.
5: Oh, yeah. Well, the idea is that all of these things are originally random, but a very few of them actually work and do something useful. Maybe something that wasn't useful in the past. And that one we know quite a bit about. I mean, we also understand it better. There are mutations that do something. We have a vague idea what, but we don't know exactly what they do. So those are harder to talk about. But there are some we know well. This is one we know pretty well. Uh, There are also a lot of recent mutations that help protect against malaria that have increased to high frequency in various parts of the world where malaria at least until recently, was a big problem. Sometimes it's still a big problem in those areas. It's not just sickle cell. There's, we probably know of 10 others.
0: And, and are, are these recent developments? I mean, when I say recent, how, you know, how long ago would, the, would these sorts of differences have appeared?
5: Well, one would think that they wouldn't be tremendously older than the ages of those diseases. And most of those diseases that we're talking about really require fairly crowded human populations to continue to spread. So we think they probably weren't there before the birth of agriculture, at least most of them.
0: Okay, so you're talking about 10,000 years ago.
5: In many cases. uh, Even malaria, the serious kind that's generated all these um, resistance uh, genes, it doesn't appear to be all that old. It might only be 5,000 years old.
0: I don't have to point out to you that not everyone agrees with your premise here. In fact, your idea, of course, is controversial. The conventional wisdom, most people believe that we've, we're really just the same as, as, say, well, the ancient Egyptians, the ones that built up pyramids 5,000 years ago, that you could have taken one of those people, one of those ancient Egyptians, put them into a modern family, sent them to modern schools. They would turn out to be the same as someone born today.
5: Not- there's no evidence for that. And there's no theoretical reason why it should be so if we're talking about some of these modern things like, you know, differences in disease resistance, 10,000 years ago, those differences probably didn't exist. Today, they do. At intermediate times, they must have been gradually increasing. Even in ancient Egypt, which might be 5,000 years ago, they'd probably be some different. Unless these all things happened exactly 10,000 years ago, it's going to spread out over time. So in terms of disease resistance, if you took an ancient Egyptian, say 5,000 years ago, and you dropped him in a say, a near-modern time where these diseases were still around, let's say 1800, yeah, he probably dropped dead.
0: Now, you've argued in the book that the evolution has really picked up speed in the last, well, we've said it, 10,000 years, and that indeed the, the rate of evolution of Homo sapiens, and after all, Homo sapiens has been around for at least 10 times that length of time, uh, that the rate in the last 10,000 years is maybe 100 times faster than it was earlier. Tell me again, what, what put us on the road to this rapid evolution?
5: Well... A couple of things. I mean, the fundamental thing is that people are able to come up with new ideas, and those ideas, when implemented, end up changing the lives they lead. So, for example, if you invent farming, eventually that puts you in a different situation where different things are useful, different things are valuable. Maybe disease resistance is now important because people are more crowded. Mostly it's this capacity for innovation that lets people change things in a way that eventually changes the lives everybody leads. But another, there have been other factors, such as the fact You know, I think we were probably able to invent agriculture well before we did, but the time wasn't right because the Ice Ages hadn't ended. When the Ice Ages ended, several different groups in different parts of the world developed agriculture not all that long afterward.
0: You know, this is rather different than the environmental determinism espoused by, for example, Jared Diamond in Guns, Germs, and Steel, where he argues that diversity is just an accident of geography. If you look at the geography, you'll understand why various groups of people are are different.
5: Well, he doesn't disagree with me entirely. For example, he believes in differences, genetic differences, in disease resistance, and that they have significant... He's talked about that from time to time. But in his model, that's about the only thing that changes, which is disease resistance, nothing else. My point is, look, anything that can be affected by genes and the changes that work better in one place, they'll be selected for. And Basically, everything can change, not just disease resistance, anything. And he, for example, talks about, says, well, there's no evidence for, like, cognitive differences between different groups. And I said, oh, there's loads of evidence. You've just dismissed all of it, you know, every single IQ test that anyone ever did.
0: Well, let me get into that, because your book concludes with an hypothesis about why Ashkenazi Jews as a group include a disproportionate number of high IQ people. I mean, you cite the number of, of Jews that win uh, Nobel Prizes in, in this country. It's like a, a quarter of them. And and yet the Jews are only 3% of the population of America. According to what you've written, this is a matter of cultural evolution of rather recent times.
5: The thing is, if you look at other, say, you look at sister populations, who, if you go back to a certain time, they were the same population as uh, Ashkenazi Jews, which might be other Jewish groups, for example, or other groups in the Middle East, they don't show these same patterns. For that matter, Ashkenazi Jews are partly European as well as partly Middle Eastern, yet they score higher than Europeans. Those appear to be the major ingredients. Europeans of some group, probably Southern Europe, and groups in the Middle East, but you know they do a lot better.
2: And,
0: and, and uh, the reason for that is?
5: I think our, our hypothesis, which we think we have a fair amount of evidence for, is that they fell into a, an odd social situation with certain strange ingredients that ended up with local evolution happening. One of the strange ingredients was rules, both from the inside and the outside, that greatly restricted intermarriage with other groups. If you intermarry with other groups very much, you can't be very different from them. You can't be different from your neighbors if you intermarry with them. But Ashkenazi Jews didn't. One way you can tell is, you look at genetic scans, you can distinguish them with essentially perfect accuracy from other Europeans, which is a recent development. I mean, for that matter, you can distinguish different European groups from each other with essentially perfect accuracy. You can look at uh, the right genetic variants, and you can say whether this guy is Italian or Irish and be right essentially every time, unless somebody just moved. Right. So you need to have a situation where they were isolated from other people genetically, and then lead an unusual life where special things paid off, different things than their neighbors. Roughly speaking, a situation in which the vast majority of Ashkenazi Jews for the last thousand years or so in Europe had white-collar jobs of various kinds, where their neighbors, like every other population, was the great majority of them farmers.
0: So it was just their job description, the fact that they were, for example, uh, they had to work as, as money lenders or in other areas of finance, and that, you say, uh, selected for those who had uh, enough of an IQ to deal with these, you know, sort of uh, high-tech jobs of the times.
5: Right. And even then, there are other things that have to be true, which aren't true in every human group, but were true there, by the way, also in other Europeans. One was, basically, the more money you made, the more kids you raised. Hmm. And that was sort of the pattern before 1800 in all of Europe, doing well at whatever jobs or occupations that your population was in that were highly rewarding would eventually lead to selection of genes that tended to push in that direction. That selection does not have to be very so noticeable you'd really notice it in one generation. Suppose the people in the Ashkenazi community, the the parents of kids were a little bit different than, than random. Let's suppose they were a little smarter than random. And suppose that this means that the average of the parents is one point different than the population from which they're drawn. you know, just talking about a slight tilt. Right. Okay. Well, over 40 generations, which is about 1,000 years, that's probably enough to generate the difference we see, which is about 10 to 15 points. I call it 12.
0: 12 points in the IQ scores.
5: Yeah. It's easy to have things happen if you have a little bit of time. It doesn't have to be so strong that everybody remarks on it every second.
0: I'm talking with Gregory Cochran, author of The 10,000-Year Explosion, Needless to say, Greg, the idea that different groups of humans will be born with significantly different genetic dowries, if you will, opens you up to a lot of criticism. Such a theory could be used to, you know, justify racist or nationalist attitudes. What do you say to that?
5: People don't need justifications. I mean, nobody talks about the deep genetic differences between Protestants and Catholics in Northern Ireland. Nobody pretends there are any. You don't need them. You'll make a, if there weren't. If you needed them, you'd make them up. But the question is, is it useful to describe reality as well as we can? And I'd say, yeah. For example, if you know differences between groups, there are cases in which there are very, very practical outcomes involving medical things, for example. You know, certain groups have these defenses against malaria, they have certain side effects. You need to know that with certain drug administrations and so forth. And there are more things than that. I mean, something as simple as saying, you're from Ireland and now you live in New Mexico. Maybe you should keep out of the sun. Should we pretend that, no, you're just exactly as vulnerable to skin cancer as everybody else? You're more. It's, it's, it's a real fact. I mean, ultimately, all these things are either real facts or we've made mistakes, right? But the differences are known, most of them. Not all of them. Some of them are subtle biochemical and we're still finding them out. But we know a lot of things. The general thrust in anthropology has been to pretend they don't exist.
0: Finally, Greg. Any predictions, since our evolution is accelerating, where are we are going to go in the next 10,000 years? Are we going to continue this rapid evolutionary pace that you uh, discerned thanks to our culture?
5: Well, our culture has changed a lot in the past couple of hundred years, so the direction of evolution has undoubtedly changed. I mean, we're not selecting for resistance to smallpox if we don't have any smallpox or if we have you know, complete control of a given disease. So some things have changed. Other things are probably still changing pretty rapidly, but they're probably changing in a different direction than they did 200 years ago. So it's sort of hard to say where it's going to be 10,000 because there's room for a lot more changes in direction.
0: I figure that uh, kids are going to be born with very thin, nimble thumbs because they're, they're texting all the time.
5: It's possible. Uh, but right now, you know, since to a large extent having children is, is a more, much more of a choice than it used to be, I would say they're selecting for people who like kids.
0: Very interesting. Greg Cochran, thank you so much for talking with me.
5: Okay, thank you.
2: Gregory Cochran is a biologist at the University of Utah and co-author of The 10,000-Year Explosion, How Civilization Accelerated Human Evolution. And that's it for our show. Thanks to humans
0: who have surpassed us in the evolutionary trajectory, Barbara Vance and Gary Niederhoff, also the NASA Astrobiology Institute and the SETI Institute, whose mission is to understand the evolution of life on this planet in the search for it elsewhere. You can read about SETI, of course, in my new book, Confessions of an Alien Hunter.
2: You've been listening to part two of our two-part series on what makes us human. We've been looking at the role of adaptation. If you missed part one, The Role of Others, you can find it online, on iTunes, or on our website, radio.seti.org.
3: Thank you. You've been listening to the Pleistocene Cooking Show. I hope you enjoy your charred mammoth flank and burnt tuber marrow delight. Tune in next week when we roast an entire saber-toothed tiger with a side of marinated pine cones. Coming up next on the Australopithecine Network, adventures in bipedalism, how to use your arms for balance. Good night.
0: The world is constantly changing and transforming. Cut through some of the noise with What's New with Wired, a podcast that goes in depth on the latest news in technology and culture. Their award-winning journalism will help you make sense of what's
3: happening in the world. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. Tech moves fast, so keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more.